The text for this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Starting at verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, we thank you for your grace and faithfulness. We thank you for your clarity and your word. I thank you, Lord, you have not left to us a mystery what the ministry of the church is. You have not left to us a mystery of what we are to do and what we are to declare and proclaim and in what character we are to do it. I thank you, Father, you have not only given us clarity on what we are called to do, but what will be the dangers that confront us. I pray this morning you would give us unity and clarity as a church in both what is our mission and a steadfast affection and commitment by the Holy Spirit to your word. I pray that you would give us clarity and boldness as a church and in my own words this morning, that you would help us to be those who are sober-minded, who endure suffering, who do the work of evangelism and live to fulfill your calling through our service for the forever proclaimed name of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to focus our time in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, but I want to give you the context, the overview of what's going on in this letter. 2 Timothy, if you're not familiar with your Bible, maybe like me early in my faith when I thought I was a Christian, but I, I really knew nothing of the Bible. I heard books like Romans, and I thought, oh, that must be about the Romans. But it's not. It's a letter to the Romans by Paul. First and Second Timothy are the same. They're not books about Timothy. They are letters written to Timothy. And these letters are written by Paul. We see the purpose of these letters in the first letter, 1 Timothy. The Paul who founded the church in Ephesus, who was the apostle to the Gentiles and goes on multiple missions journeys and, find, and doesn't find churches like, oh, I found this, but makes disciples, proclaims the gospel, people get saved, he returns, prays with the church, appoints elders in the church, and then there is a church. Ephesus was one of those churches. And Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus on one of his journeys. And he left him with a specific purpose. 
Timothy was to steady that church. The church was under the influence of teachers who were swerving from the truth. Teachers who wanted to talk about stories and who wanted to argue about the Old Testament and laws and come up with their own stories and their own reasoning. Men who didn't understand the word but were eager to proclaim and to be looked at as teachers. And Paul left Timothy for that purpose under his authority to rebuke these men and to clarify for the church what the church should look like, what the church should be. We have that under Paul's authority. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he says, I left you there until I return that you might put things in order or how the church ought to behave, how they ought to live as a pillar and buttress of truth, that they should be the structure, the building, or many illustrations in the Bible, the body, the bride, the people of God that proclaim the truth to all. And so Timothy is left there to put into order or to teach the church how to behave. In the second letter, Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue in that ministry. We see at the end of the letter, he is asking him to come to him, that he longs to see him. We see in our own passage this morning uh, that Paul's life is coming to an end that he sees the writing on the wall, that soon he will be martyred. His death is coming. And he writes this letter to encourage Timothy, who was often timid, often a little fearful of man, often not one to be bold. Timothy was a younger man in the church, probably leading both men similar to his age and men quite a bit older, and not always eager, not always sure. And Paul encourages Timothy to press on. If you want to open your Bible, and I would encourage you to open your Bible to the book of 2 Timothy and just follow along with me as I'm kind of work us through 2 Timothy 1, 2, and 3 on our way to our passage this morning in 2 Timothy 4. So if you open up your Bible to 2 Timothy 1, you'll see Paul's affection for Timothy. You see his writing and that he longs for him. He prays for him. He is hoping to see him. He rejoices in what he's accomplished. He encourages Timothy to press on, to continue in what he's doing. And in chapter 1, if you look at verse 13, Paul tells Timothy what it is he's supposed to do. He says, follow the pattern of the sounds words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he encourages Timothy, the means by which he is going to do this, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He tells Timothy his affection for him, his love for him, and his mission to continue to follow the pattern of Paul in what he has preached, in the faith and love of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, he is to guard that deposit. Paul goes on to make him aware, as he already knows, there's two men uh, with very odd names, names you shouldn't choose for your children, one, because they're odd, and, and two, because they're heretics. But Felagus and Hermonagus, so if you feel compelled to give your children those names because you like the way they sound, I would encourage you to refrain. 
Uh, But these two men have given up the calling. They left Paul. And we see this pattern continue as Paul proclaims what the truth is. What is the good deposit that Timothy is supposed to guard? And what is the danger to that good deposit? And the pattern you will see throughout the epistles and in 2 Timothy is that what he is to guard is what has been given to him, the word of God. The teaching of the prophets and the apostles, the sound words of Paul and Peter and John, that he is to hold fast to the word, to handle it rightly, because the danger is there will come other men, not from out there. These aren't evil politicians. These aren't evil rulers. These aren't evil kings. These are men inside the church who will depart, who will swerve, who will wander who will go away from what has clearly been commanded and proclaimed in the word of God, the good deposit entrusted to Timothy and the church, and wander off into something else. We see that again in chapter 2. Paul tells Timothy to remember chapter 2. If you look at chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul proclaims the message of the gospel by both the prophets that Jesus would come as the offspring of David and the apostles, the fulfillment of what was proclaimed, that he is resurrected, risen from the dead. And Paul says he is bound in chains for that. He's not speaking metaphorically. This isn't like the chain breaker song. This is literal chains. He is imprisoned. Paul is often and probably here chained to another man, a Roman soldier who watches him regularly. And Paul says, while he's bound in chains, he immediately jumps. He he doesn't even say, but I have hope because he can't get there. He immediately contrasts. I am bound in chains, but the word of God is not bound. What he has said, what he has done, his faithfulness, not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Paul says, because the word of God is not bound, because the gospel of Christ does its work, because the one who was said would come of David has come, and he has both died and resurrected, the word of God continues to be true and faithful. And so he continues with endurance, even through suffering, to make that known for a reason. That his people would obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That they would hear the truth and be saved and continue in that truth onto eternal glory with their Savior. This again is a pattern for Paul. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to one approved by God, a worker that has no need to be ashamed. And then he tells him, what would be a worker of God, one who is approved, who has no need to be ashamed? 
You can look at it in verse 15. He says, handling the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. And among them are Hyamaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. And then he quotes, what does God's firm foundation stand on? What has God said will be true? The Lord knows those who are his. He knows those who are his. His sheep hear his voice. Ephesians and Romans that he has chosen before the foundation of time. That his plan will be fulfilled. That the proclamation of the gospel will lead to the salvation of those who are Christ's and to their sanctification until eternal glory. He says, God's firm foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He encourages Timothy and, and maybe many of you are aware of and remember and to flee youthful lusts. He says that he should pursue righteousness, faith and love in 2 Timothy 22. Uh, rather, 2 Timothy 2, 22. You won't find a 2 Timothy 22. It's only four chapters long. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, but that if he wants to be a servant of the Lord, what should he be? Verse 24, the Lord's, Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He says, Timothy is to guard the good deposit. He is to handle rightly the word of God, and he is to be a servant of the Lord who is faithful in love and patience and kindness that he would call on the Lord with a pure heart, that he would be a man of peace and proclamation, that even in his correction, there would be gentleness and kindness, patience and enduring the evil of others because it is God who will do what? Save and sanctify his people. That God will bring them to their sentence, senses he will grant them repentance and then bring them to their senses to escape the snare of the devil. Then he again warns Timothy in chapter 3 about false teachers. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, 
And then again, he lists false teachers who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sin and burdened by various passions. And, he, and they are under these false teachers, always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You're probably familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. As Paul declares, there will be false teachers and there will be people who meet these descriptions and yet claim and display an appearance of godliness, but deny the power. They live in selfishness and recklessness and arrogance and love of money and love of things and love of pleasures, but not lovers of God. They deny the power of God that the gospel transforms people from those who love money and pleasure and are swollen with conceit and arrogance into those who love and long for her, his appearing. What is Timothy to do in the face of such action? Well, you again are probably familiar with his encouragement. In verse 10, chapter three, he tells him, Follow my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. And he endured those because of the Lord, and he rescued him. And indeed, all that desire to live a godly life, Timothy, will be persecuted. Because while evil people, verse 13, and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived... What is Timothy to do? I hope these are verses you hold fast to, verse 15 and on. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed in who you have learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to do what? What he said is the goal for believers, to make you wise for salvation, that the word would be proclaimed and that people would be saved. And then he goes on and he says, though he's been acquainted with them and they are that which makes people wise for salvation through Christ, that all scripture, the word, the good deposit, what Timothy is to handle rightly is not just a book, but is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is the word of God that saves and sanctifies. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the power of Christ in which people are saved. It is the work of the Spirit in which saves them, but the Word of God tells us it is the hearing of the truth that is the means by which the response of salvation comes. And he tells Timothy again and again, you must hold to the Word. There are those who have swerved. There are those who want to change it. There are those who permit sin and proclaim sin in the name of Christ, and they are liars. They are deceiving. And how do you combat them? You hold fast to the word because it is the word that saves and sanctifies. Nothing else. It is the word that the church is built on. It is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is the word that proclaims and remains 
for mankind to know that they have sinned against a holy and righteous God, and that he has sent his son to save them. He reminds Timothy throughout the whole book, but he tells him again here at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, where our passage starts. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Number one in your outline, the presence of the eternal and righteous judge. Notice he tells Timothy, I charge you. He tells him, I charge you in solemnness. This isn't, this isn't a charge. And I remember I preached this at TC and it went over very well. I used a speech from a movie that I had seen in where a dying man gives his son a charge and he gives the whole charge and talks about what it is. And then he slaps him in the face as hard as he can. And he says, and this is so you remember it and then drops dead. And I used that introduction on this passage and men were like, one guy said, I wanted to stand up and slap the dude next to me. I was ready to go, right? But that's not the kind of charge that Paul's actually giving. That was my failure as a young, zealous man who saw a movie, a myth, a story, and I felt like that's the kind of charge I wanna do. I wanna be on my deathbed, get up, say, Judah, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. You are to care for your mother and your wife and your children. And you are to proclaim him sober-mindedly until your death. You are to endure suffering. You are to do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. And this is so you remember it. Whack! Dead. That's memorable. But that's not the charge that's going on here. The charge that Paul is giving is not, Timothy, you know how tough I am. You know I'm willing to slap you in the face before I die. No, Timothy is being charged by Paul. He's saying, I'm dying. My departure is coming. But there is a judge who is not dead, who does not die, and who is always watching. There is one who is always aware. It's not a bold, fatherly charge. It's a sober, humble, pleading. It's not a demand of encouragement. It's a cry, Timothy, please remember this. Though Paul is dying, Christ has already died and risen. God does not die. He reigns forever. Jesus will never be offered or sacrificed again. He is in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. The one who will make all things known. The one who Matthew says, every word spoken, Christ said, will be judged. That Peter says, every deed done by man, the Father watches and he judges without partiality. I heard the illustration made recently, and I think it was helpful. We often speak of our concern that Google knows what we're doing all the time, right? You're freaked out because you're talking to somebody about clear Pepsi and how you wish it was around again. And some ad comes up from China offering to mail you clear Pepsi, which no longer exists. And you're terrified. 
How do the minions of Steve Jobs, even after his death, know what I want? You warn others, Apple's always watching. I had a man recently tell me, I don't use Siri, because of those reasons, he doesn't want Siri to know what he's doing. What if you were half as terrified of God as you are of modern technology? What if you considered half as often that God is always here, he is always watching, he always knows he is the judge over all things. He doesn't just know your location and your preferences, but he knows the hidden desires of your heart. He knows every thought and every word. He knows you beyond how you know yourself. And he is always there. That is why the scripture says that wisdom is first to fear God. Because he knows all. That's why 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. To be reverent, to have the knowledge, to have the kind of feeling you have of, is Apple listening to me right now? But rather to know God is. And there's so much hope in this for you, Christian, that he is the ever-present God who knows and hears all things. Because if you are not a believer, you should live in fear, and that fear should remind you of your sin, and it should, by the grace of God and the hearing of the gospel, compel you to repent, to be saved by him, and then to put your hope completely in him that he is the only one that sanctifies. But Christian, if you have already done so, your fear, your reverence of God is different. First Peter is not written to the world, it's written to the church. And it says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves in fear. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 1, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and spot. If your hope is in Christ, the God who knows all things, who sees all things, who judges not only the actions and the words, but the thoughts and the intention of the heart, knows so. Every deed, every sin, every temptation that you have sinned in. And knowing so, he redeemed you. Not with silver or gold. Not with the wealth of men not with perishing treasure, but with the precious blood of Christ. If he would give the blood of his son, knowing all that you are, should you not rejoice that he is always present, that he always knows, that he didn't make that choice unknowingly? He is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. He is all-powerful, he knows all, and he can do all. And all of that he chose to send his son to die for sinners. And not just vaguely, with full knowledge of who you are and how you live and what you did. He sent Christ to die that you would be saved. And he purposed and planned that you would be sanctified. And what are the means of sanctification and salvation? What is it that we should look to if we rejoice that he is always present and knows us and yet chose to save us? 
We know he has saved us by his word, and we know he sanctifies us by his word. So what does he tell Timothy? Knowing the presence of God, knowing that he is judge, knowing that he has made himself known in his appearing, and he will appear again in his kingdom. What is Timothy to do? Number two, the necessary ongoing proclamation of the word. The necessary ongoing proclamation of the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Remember, he told him, handle the word rightly. Handle it rightly. Do your best to show yourself as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. He quickly moves to the servant of the Lord is not quarrelsome. He is not one who is looking to start battles or wars. He is one who teaches with kindness and patience and love of Christ. Correcting even his opponents with gentleness because he endures suffering. But it does not change the fact he makes the word known. He is to preach the word. And when is he to do so? In season and out of season. I feel so blessed to be a man who gets to preach the word in season. There are few mornings. Mornings do come where I think somebody's going to be mad about this. They're not going to like this. Next week, I'm, I'm prepping my heart for that. People aren't going to want to hear what I'm preaching, but I'm preaching it because it is the Word of God and it is the necessity for His people. But most Sundays, I don't get up thinking, who's going to attack me? Who, who's going to come after me? I know Faith Bible Church has put their faith in Christ, who trusts it is the Bible and longs to live as a church, the people of God who long for Christ's reign. In season, but Timothy's not told just to preach the word when it's bearing fruit, when, when people are rejoicing and growing and longing. It says in season and out of season. When fruit's not being bore and all the fruit is rotting and it's falling off the tree, to not go, why am I even doing this? But to know what he is doing is not about him. It is about his Savior. It is about the Lord. It is what God has commanded and made known. And he is faithful, though he might be bound like Timothy. The word of God is not. And it's to be preached in favor and disfavor, in season and out of season. When it's bearing fruit and when it appears, nothing is happening. And how does he do so? gives us three statements of how the word is preached. Two negative in function, one positive. To reprove, reprove. To expose or to convict the hearer. Reproof is to expose or to convict the hearer of the word. And to rebuke, to expose, to correct the hearer. That the hearer would be exposed. He would know his sin. And that he would be corrected, told he is wrong. Reproved, exposed, and rebuked, corrected. These are the negative sense in which the word is to be preached. 
And as you read your Bible, I am often, often have been challenged by others and said, you, you talk of sin too much. We've had many come and go from our church saying, it feels like there's too much sin speech. And I think my burden is, I just preach through the word of God. I have no choice but to declare what he declares. And what he declares is often reproof and rebuke. He is aware of your need. He is aware of your sin. He is aware of the state of the world. And he has not written the word in such a way that he says, man doesn't need to know more about their sin. They know enough already. He, doesn't, he did not write and did not record the word in such a way that says creation and the conscience is enough. Generally, man knows they're sinful. He says, no, they need the law. They need the word. They need the gospel to make clear their sins. There is no good news if you do not know you are a sinner. And there is no sanctification if you are not moving away from sin. Salvation and sanctification is the plan of God for his church. And he does so in making sin clear. But the preaching of God's word is not to be negative. It is not negative. To expose your sin is not negative. And to make corrections to your life is not negative because the positive application of the word exhortation to encourage, to console, to compel, and to urge. See, a Christian, though we might not like to be reproved and rebuked, we don't like reproof, we don't like rebuke, because it gets to the core of issues of sin in our heart. We have hope that we can be, because we know 2 Timothy 3.16 has already told us that's what the Word of God does. It reproves, rebukes, corrects, that the man of God may be trained in righteousness, that he might know. We long for the day that Christ will come. And as John says, those who put their hope in such a day live now to be pure as he is pure. We believe what Paul wrote to Timothy about the Word of God. It is to save and to sanctify his people. It's not to bring us our best life. It's not to make our life easy. It's not that we would be wealthy and happy and healthy in the present life. We might be bound in chains. We might be thrown in prison. We might be sick and dying. We might not have food or we might not have the food we want. We might not have the finances. But the Word of God is not bound. It saves and it sanctifies. It does the work. And he says, Timothy must reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Because in that instruction, we are saved. It is made known to us that Christ has died for us. There is no fear in knowing of lingering sin because we know lingering sin is being put to death. He did not come and die so that we could get away with sin. He came and died so sin would be put away. And we rejoice that sin is put away. We rejoice that sin is taken from us. And though, as we looked at last week, it might be painful in the moment of discipline, it leads to the fruit of righteousness. 
We have our hope set on a God who is not against us. He is for us, and he has declared that in Christ. That Jesus has saved us, as we reminded ourselves this morning in communion. And so how then is Timothy to preach? With complete patience. With all patience. Every necessary patience. Patience. Not a patient like every necessary patient to know. He is to forbear difficulty. He is to control himself in the midst of strife or opposition. And he is to instruct. He is to make known what is true. He's to teach. He's to guard the good deposit, handle the word rightly, to know that which was taught to him and proclaimed to him. And now he holds what is very breathed by God that his church would be saved and sanctified. Why is this essential? You might think, Jake, you're preaching your job description to us. We know that's what we're supposed, you're supposed to do. We know that's your job. I'm thankful for that. I am thankful that Faith Bible is aware that leaders are to be qualified and that leaders are to be those who lead in the doctrine and the direction of the church. That they must hold fast to this. That Timothy must. But I want to remind you, this letter to Timothy was not a private letter told just give to pastors. Just give to elders. Just give to leaders. This was a publicly written letter for the purpose that the church is intended to know that the word is the center of ministry. All ministry is a ministry of the word. This morning, if you showed up to greet and to set up chairs, you might think that's not a ministry of the word. But we'll get to 1 Peter 4 that says, whether you speak or you serve, you do so by the power that God supplies for the glory of Christ that he will be proclaimed. And how do you know who that Christ is? And how do you know of his glory that will be proclaimed? Not by experience now. You know authoritatively by his word. And you live to serve and to speak in accordance to his word, which informs you of his character by the grace and power of his spirit that you would know. But this is also not just Timothy's job description. It is describing to Timothy what he must do in others. Look to 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. As he told Timothy, he said, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. Faith Bible, particularly men of Faith Bible, but also true for ladies, you do not just need to be taught. You need to teach. You are not called just to receive. You are called to give. We look at it often, Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, that you may teach and admonish and rejoice and sing and praise to one another. The teaching of God's word is not only for pastors, not only for Sundays. 
The preaching of God's word in an office and the direction and the doctrine of the church is the responsibility of elders. But the teaching of God's word to God's people that they would be sanctified because they are saved is the responsibility of the church. And the call of elders is not to teach and to hold and withhold information. Not to be careful and cautious that no one knows what you know, but the call, like Timothy, is being called by Paul, I'm dying, Timothy, and this is what you must do. The call is that faithful men, those who put their faith in Christ, those who show their faith in Christ, those who live to be conformed to the image of Christ and not the world, are to be taught for the purpose that they might teach others also. Men, you are not intended to hear the word of God, to walk out of this room and say, that was so encouraging, that was so good, that was so helpful, I wish I could do that. It is, I'm going to do that. I'm going to know and learn the word of God to teach others also. That doesn't mean you have to be an elder and you have to preach and you have to do all these things. You have to have those responsibilities. But your responsibility is the same. To make the word known when it's popular and when it's not. And to reprove and rebuke and to exhort and to encourage one another with patience that the body of Christ would be built up. Ephesians 4.16, that the church would speak the truth, the word of God, in love, the character of God, that the body would be built up. Titus 2, that older women would teach younger women to live in such a way that the word of God would not be reviled. This passage is not just so we know this is what the church should be and we can look out and say, oh, those poor churches with pastors who won't preach the word. It is so the church will know this is what we're doing. Yes, you must have men who are willing to preach the word. Yes, the church needs the word preached to it. You must be compelled. You must be rebuked. You must be reproved. But not for the purpose of being a fat and happy Christian that doesn't serve Christ. That you would strengthen the body. It is why the church does not need more men to listen to. You don't need more podcasts or more books. You don't need to find more men to hear truth from. You need to hear from the men who are preaching to you. And yes, there are helpful and other men who preach. But you need to hear, you need to be faithful, and you need to teach. You need to make that truth known to others. You need to apply that truth. And I'm so thankful for the men in our body who do that. And I'm so hopeful that he is going to continue our body to be a church that expects that. Not for accusations of arrogance or, you know, we're that church that expects everybody to serve or to know the Bible or we think we know too much because we believe what God has said, that his word saves people and it sanctifies them. And the means by which he does that is his body holding fast to that word, not drawn astray by every idea and every wind of doctrine, but stabilized in the truth and the family of a local church that they would speak the truth to one another in love. We don't need more men who we can listen to. 
We need more men ready to teach others. We don't need more men who quote other men. We need more men who know the word of God and quote it. We don't need more men that say, have you heard this podcast or read this book? We need men who say, have you looked at 1 Timothy? Have you seen Ephesians 4? Do you know 1 Peter 4? You're having issues in your marriage? Books can be helpful. We're about to go through one. And the benefit of that book is it points and says, look at Ephesians 5. Know it. Hold fast to it. Look at 1 Peter 3 and Colossians 3. Know them. Look at God's design in Genesis. Know it. We don't need more men to listen to. We need more men who are willing to listen and preach. Willing to teach others. We don't need men who are unsatisfied by the sufficiency of the Word of God. We need men who are never satisfied by their understanding and they long to hold the Word rightly and to teach others also. Chapter 4, verse 3 tells us that times will come when men and women don't want to teach They don't want to make the truth known. They just want to be told what they're doing is okay. Verse 3 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Unsatisfied with the plain, clear truth, Scripture. Those who are not settled by the fact that Peter says, we have been given all we need in life and godliness. Unsettled that it is God's word breathed out by him that reproves, rebukes, corrects, and teaches that the man of God may be complete. No, he says the time is coming where people will have a condition. They'll have an itch. They're unwilling to submit to the sufficiency of Scripture. I think the best definition that I've ever read is by Wayne Grudem. He says, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God as He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. It is all sufficient. All that we need in life and godliness has been given to us through the word. But the condition of men will become an itchy ear. An unwillingness to be satisfied by the word and the demand that something else must satisfy. The condition is looking for solutions or escapes rather than suffering in faithfulness and sanctification. Looking for a new solution to the problems of man. What else can fix us? What else can do it? What else can reprove and rebuke and correct? What can make me complete? And looking everywhere to find someone to tell you how much more in our time than in Timothy's time is that available? You now, you wouldn't even have to go home. You could just pull out your smartphone. And whatever it is you wanted itched, you could find someone to scratch it. You could find someone to tell you. You could find someone to give you the solution. 
to tell you that you're right and that it's okay. You could find someone just like is declared in 1 Timothy 3. It's okay to be a lover of self, a lover of money, to be proud, to be arrogant, to be abusive, to be so disobedient to your parents, to be ungrateful, to be unholy. It's okay that you're heartless. It's okay that you're not pleasable. It's okay that you're slanderous. It's okay you don't have self-control. It's okay that you're brutal. It's okay that you don't love good. It's okay that you're treacherous. It's okay that you're reckless. It's okay that you're swollen with conceit. It's okay that you are a lover of pleasure because that's who you are. And they will go to the Word of God even. The danger is not the world out there. It is the church that will tell you all of these things can exist with godliness. But Paul says, no, these are those who tell you you can have the appearance of God without the power, without actual change, without sanctification. The condition, they have itchy ears. The symptoms, their self-prescription. I am unsatisfied. I heard once. I read once. I think maybe. And find some other solution, some other justification for their sin and for their fleeing from the Word. That is, 2 Timothy 2 told us, it is not just that people are deceiving, it's they're deceived. They propagate that information they find it. They say, well, I know that this person says this or this person says that. Maybe it's this. They're trying to find every solution to sin and to call it something else rather than to listen to God. Plenty willing to deliver, to scratch the itch. And they will accumulate. They will heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They don't like what they're hearing from one person, they'll find another teacher that will tell them something different. They'll go through teacher after teacher after teacher until they find one that tells them this is okay. I don't know how many women and men I have heard in the last five years of ministry justify divorcing their spouse, not because of adultery, not because of abandonment, not because of a sin, but because they're dissatisfied and they found someone to tell them their dissatisfaction is enough. How many men who have been plagued by sexual morality because rather than repenting of their sin and viewing who God is, they think that they can hide it and they find someone to tell them it's okay and this is just how men are. Rather than such were some of you. The people of God are not called to find for themselves teachers to suit every desire. Not called to find themselves a book to answer every question. Teachers are not bad, and books are not bad. Paul has said, we must preach the word. There are many who preach the word. But Christian, if your life is consumed with podcasts and books and not the word of God, if what is drawn to your mind is first and foremost a book or a podcast or a sermon you once heard and not the passage, not the truth, I would encourage you, it is good to be encouraged by others. It is good to remember truth. Remember, Paul reminds Timothy of that. He says, remember who you have heard this from. The book of Hebrews tells us to look to those, remember those who have led us. 
It says to obey and submit to them because they watch over our souls. But it directs that. It says, remember what you have learned. Remember those who spoke the word of God to you. I'm not saying you should stop listening to any podcast and stop reading any book. I'm saying don't be satisfied to just have a bunch of teachers feeding you truth, fattening you up, and you don't even know what the food you're eating is. You don't know what they're giving you. You just know they fed and I was satisfied. Don't just accumulate teachers to satisfy your own passions. Know what is taught. Know the truth. Desire to be mature, that you don't just listen to a sermon and say, that was encouraging. But you say, the word of God compels me because of this passage. That is true. This needs to change in my life. And, and you can instruct and teach others in it also. And we're at different areas of our faith, different maturities. The word of God recognizes that. There will be those who are immature. If you've only been saved for a few years, of course. If you've been saved for decades in our church even, of course you will see men and women who are more faithful, who have more knowledge, more understanding. That's the design of God's church, that you would be taught together, that you would learn together, that you would know. But never be satisfied to just have your passions satisfied, your itches scratched, and never mature to know the truth. Because verse 4 tells us what will be the fruit of this. When their ears itch and they just seek to find someone to itch the ear, to encourage their passion, they will turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. They won't even look to the word to be satisfied. They'll just look for someone else that can teach them what they want. They won't care if it's true. They won't care what they're fed. They don't care what they eat. They just want to be full. So they're willing to accept anything. This is the warning. This is the warning to us. Faith, Bible, church. I am not saying you all need to be perfect biblical scholars. But if the desire of your life is more to have your satisfaction and passions met than to know what does the word of God say about this. If the desire of your life is to find someone who will say what you want them to say rather than what does the word of God say about this, be warned, there will come a time and I believe that time is now. One of those times is today when people will gather teachers for themselves to suit their own passions and wander off into mist. And I know many of you are watching friends and family do that. And I would encourage you, hear the condition and see the symptom and flee the source of deception and give yourself to the Word of God. Lastly, not just the condition, not just its destruction, but the encouragement, sobriety, suffering, and serving to be satisfied in Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, As for you, 
Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Always clear in thought, not intoxicated in the present state, not given in your passions to something else that would delude you or distract you, right? We're familiar with intoxication. He's not talking about intoxication alone. He's not saying just don't be drunk. He's saying have clear thought. Don't let things external to you be that which determines to you what is wise or what is right, what is good and what is bad. Have a clear mind. Let your mind think clearly about the truth of Christ and who Christ is. Not intoxicated in the world, in the present state of sin, but knowing the reality that Christ has redeemed, that he saves his people and that they are to be sanctified. Sober-minded and willing to suffer, enduring suffering. Think of this, Paul is in prison. He's literally chained. He knows he's going to be killed. And what he doesn't say to Timothy is, Timothy, you're dealing with relational strife at a church. Suck it up. People are trying to kill me. Right? How kind of Paul. Would you not be compelled if you had a little bit of a whiny man at a church who's timid and doesn't want to challenge others, and he's saying it's too hard, it's too much. Meanwhile, Rome is trying to kill you. Would your heart go, Timothy, push through. You can do this. Endure the suffering, right? How wise of Paul in his description to Timothy, endure suffering, forbear, put up with what is hard. He points Timothy in a very, as we looked at last week, Hebrews 12 way, to know the truth and endure in it. He gently and kindly, not quarrelsome, but gently encourages Timothy, endure suffering, Do the work of an evangelist. Evangelist is rooted in the word gospel to proclaim, to be a herald of the good news. He says, Timothy, make the good news known. Do the work to proclaim the gospel. And then lastly, fulfill your ministry. That word ministry, the Greek word is the same word we get deacon from. It's just the word to serve. So I think you would be better served I'm not a Bible translator or a Greek scholar, but in my opinion, you would be better served if it said, fulfill your service. Fulfill your serving to Christ. Timothy's might be different than yours, but 1 Peter 4, that's on the bottom of your handout, makes clear, we each have been given a gift. We each have been gifted by God for a purpose, to serve one another for a reason, as a good steward or responsible with God's varied grace. That whoever speaks, whether it be the preacher or the person at the info table or the greeter or the children's teacher or just you sitting in your seat next to someone else would speak according to the oracles of God. And whoever serves, whether that be by preparation and preaching or the stacking of chairs or loading the trailer or teaching others or going to someone's house to bring them a meal, inviting neighbors over to hear the truth of the gospel. Let them serve by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to proclaim. We are to place our hope in exactly what Paul says. If you look at those last verses, 
Paul prepares for his death. He says, I know my death is coming, and I know when I die, I will be judged by Christ, and he will award to me on that day, because of Christ, the crown of righteousness. Christian, he does not stop there to say, this is my apostle crown. He says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I'm so thankful that the grace of God has called and compelled you as members and attenders of Faith Bible Menifee, those who love Christ and long for his appearing. If that is not true of you, I would plead with you to hear the truth of the word of God, that Christ is the only solution to sin. Salvation comes by faith alone and grace alone. Only by the blood of Christ is anyone saved. And if your hope is in that, that he has not left you to just figure everything out in life, but you have been saved because you will be sanctified, because you long for his appearing, your life will from that day forward progress and change, and through trial and through discipline and through adversity, you will suffer and you endure suffering with a sober mind because you know my mission here is not to change the world, it's to proclaim Christ who has changed it. And you will serve one another and love one another because you long for his appearing. And through all of that, he will display the manifold wisdom of his grace to the world, that his son would be exalted, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And he will reign for all time over a new creation for his glory. And when that time comes, his children will be given a crown of righteousness because they have longed for and loved the coming of that day. If that is true of you, even this morning for the first time, I think the question you should ask yourself this morning, where do I need reproof and rebuke? What exhortation do I need? What, what do I need to be reminded of? Am I doing the work of an evangelist? Do I make the gospel known? And, and how have I been called to serve Christ, not just be satisfied? And as you ask those questions, I would encourage you to ask one another, to be encouraged together how to do that. I'm thankful for a Sunday where we get a look to a passage of Scripture, to be reminded of our purposes as a church, uh, to think clearly about what He has called us to. And I pray that for you it is the same that you feel the reality that it is not just Timothy charged in the presence of God, not just the ancient church that was in danger to giving itself to all kinds of passions and pleasures, and not just the ancient church or some future church that rests its hope fully on the love of God and was saved by his grace and will be sanctified in it. I pray you would continue and endure in that mission with us together, that his name would be proclaimed and we would serve him as he ought and as he has planned and purposed that we would glorify him as we ought. Let's pray that he would continue to do so and we'll briefly praise him in song together and then continue to encourage one another in fellowship.